Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Thursday, November 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The U.S. Federal Reserve kept interest rates steady yesterday, and Egypt has allowed a few people to leave Gaza. The situation in the Strip is dire. People describe it as hell. Very little water, very little food, no electricity much of the time, and the bombings. Plus, we'll take a look at the fierce competition over electric vehicle and battery plants in the United States. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The Federal Reserve decided to hold interest rates steady yesterday. The meeting was the second in a row where the Fed decided against an increase. Given how far we have come, along with the uncertainties and risks we face, the committee is proceeding carefully. Chair Jay Powell emphasized the need to take a wait-and-see approach, even though the U.S. economy is cruising along. The labor market has been rebalancing, but it's still very tight by many measures. GDP growth has been strong although many forecasters are forecasting, and they have been forecasting, that it will slow. All good stats, except for worries about what it all means for stubborn inflation, and that's what's keeping Powell up at night. Equities moved higher while Powell was speaking. The S&P 500 ended the day up around 1%. Some people are now allowed to cross the border from Gaza into Egypt. It's the first time since the war between Israel and Hamas began on October 7th, and it's happening at a place called the Rafah Crossing. The development marks a huge turning point for the humanitarian crisis, but the number of people being allowed through is pretty small. Here to talk about the situation is Hiba Saleh. She's the FT's Cairo correspondent. Hi, Hiba. Hello. So, Hiba, who's being allowed into Egypt over this Rafah Crossing? Two sets of people are being allowed into Egypt through the Rafah crossing. Some severely wounded Palestinians and selected dual nationals, not Palestinians who normally reside in Gaza. We're speaking about dual nationals who have another place to go to once they exit into Egypt and the wounded. So this is a pretty big development since we talked to you last about the crossing a few weeks ago. How was this negotiated? We don't know everything, but we know that Qatar has mediated a disagreement between Egypt and Hamas over where UN officials who would examine the documents of dual nationals emerging from Gaza, where they should be located. It is also possible that there were conditions attached related to the entry of aid in Gaza. Egypt has been very keen to secure agreement from Israel that aid trucks should enter Gaza. This is important because it wants aid to be delivered to the Palestinians and doesn't want the Palestinians to come out of Gaza and be refugees in Egypt. It wants them to be helped on their land. So, Hibbo, what are we hearing from the people who are coming out of Gaza about the conditions there? People describe it as hell. Very little water, very little food, no electricity much of the time, 
and the bombings, the constant bombardment, the fear. One of my colleagues in Gaza spoke to a Palestinian with German nationality who was on his way out from Gaza, and he he said, my sister is under the rubble of her house. There's no equipment to bring her out. You know, this massive bombardment results in houses collapsing very often on the heads of their inhabitants. So you have whole families killed in these collapses and there's no equipment to move all this concrete and all this masonry to save people from under the rubble. Wow. So then this opening at Rafa, is it going to have a big impact on the humanitarian situation that you're describing? I doubt it because we're not talking about huge numbers. 2.2 or 2.3 million Palestinians live in Gaza. We understand there are a few thousand dual nationals who will emerge. Of course, if the flow of aid is increased, and if it's dramatically increased, Gaza used to receive up to 500 trucks a day of supplies because everything comes from across its border. We know aid trucks have been entering, but not in huge numbers. So the humanitarian situation remains really bad and a few thousand people coming out is not really going to make a difference. Hiba Saleh is the FT's Cairo correspondent. Thank you so much for your time, Hiba. You're welcome. Thank you. Toyota announced this week it's investing $8 billion into its battery manufacturing plant in the U.S. state of North Carolina. It's the latest sign that President Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is bringing in tons of foreign investment. You see, foreign companies are scrambling to grab big tax subsidies from the IRA, and states are scrambling to attract those projects into their backyards. And that's causing an industry shift in the U.S. While you might think of the Midwest, places like Detroit, when you think about cars, the Southeast is becoming a hub for electric vehicle manufacturing, places like North Carolina. The region has been leveraging its loose labor laws to compete for projects. As part of our series on foreign investment in the U.S., the FT's Amanda Chu went to the city of Florence, South Carolina, last month. It's a state that's also seen billions of dollars in EV and battery manufacturing investment. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Mark. So, Amanda, tell me a little bit about your trip. Yeah, so the race is on to become the capital of the electric vehicle industry. And what is going on in Florence, South Carolina is a perfect example of this. For those who don't know, Florence is a small city in South Carolina on the southeastern coast of the United States, close to Myrtle Beach, which is a very popular vacation spot. And there's this huge former cotton field there that's now being turned into a battery cell factory for this company called Envision AESC. It's a Japanese manufacturer, and it's one of the largest investments the area has ever seen. And so I was driving around the construction site in a massive pickup truck with Greg Robinson. He's the head of Florence County's Economic Development Partnership, native South Carolinian. And he is one of the main figures in um, wooing AESC and getting them to land in Florence. These are sometimes forgotten fields that are turning into advanced technology for the future. The initiatives that are in taking shape right now are going to transform a community of significance. We're a mid-market, but would eventually become a major market. 
like we heard in the first episode, the reason these projects can get off the ground is foreign investment. What kind of role did it play in South Carolina? Yeah, so foreign investors are playing a very disproportionate role in building out South Carolina's electric vehicle and battery supply chain. I visited AESC site in Florence, and literally 90 minutes away is where Volkswagen Scout Motors is building the first electric vehicle factory in the U.S. in this town of Blythewood, South Carolina. And it's surprising, but it makes a lot of sense because when you think about who is producing these technologies right now, it's not the U.S. And so if the U.S. wants to build out its own supply chain, it really needs to work with foreign investors, largely in Japan, South Korea, China. So what is the draw of South Carolina, and I guess the Southeast more broadly, for the kind of projects that you're describing? So the Southeast is doing extremely well in the competition to win these projects. They're going to extreme lengths to woo investors with you know, state tax breaks, private dinners, and subsidies. Um, but in addition to these soft factors, there's also an important element when it comes to right-to-work. Yeah, what, are, what is right-to-work? What are right-to-work laws? Yeah, so right-to-work laws say that employees are, don't have to pay fees to a union if they're in a unionized workplace. And over half of U.S. states have right-to-work laws, and it's disproportionately in the U.S. South. And so right-to-work laws are seen as a barometer of a state's friendliness to employers. And Greg Robinson, who we heard from earlier, said that this is a key priority. We're a right-to-work state, and we do not work with companies that are looking to unionize, period. Matter of fact, I, I won't even court those type of companies. Unions can cost companies a lot of money because they advocate for things like higher wages. And this puts a lot of pressure on Midwestern states who risk losing out on a lot of these new investments. They have a really strong history and legacy of labor organizing, and as we've seen with the United Auto Workers strike, those unions can wield a lot of power and can be really disruptive to production. And site selectors who I talked to have told me that when they work with companies who don't have a U.S. presence, companies tell them that they don't want to work in the Midwest because they know this legacy of unions. When we look at the data, about a fifth of current operating electric vehicle and battery plants in the U.S. are unionized. And the reason why this matters is because President Biden promised to create thousands of good-paying union jobs on the campaign trail for the energy transition. And right now, where we're seeing the trend of where battery plants are being announced and the current data for current operations, it feels very unlikely that this electric vehicle future is going to be unionized. So... Foreign companies like the Inflation Reduction Act because they get subsidies for investing in U.S. manufacturing. It's how Joe Biden is selling the act. But he's getting pushback, Amanda, from Republicans in Congress, some of whom want to repeal it. What happens if there are rollbacks to the IRA? So many state and local officials say that while the IRA accelerated electric vehicle manufacturing across the U.S. and particularly in South Carolina, it's only accelerating a trend. It didn't start it. If IRA subsidies are rolled back, there is a concern that maybe some projects won't get built at the same speed or reach the same capacity that they were initially announced um, to be. But companies are confident that 
these manufacturing investments will continue and the consumer demand is there for electric vehicles. Amanda Chu is the FT's U.S. energy reporter. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thanks, Mark. As part of this series, Amanda has also been putting together the best cities in America for foreign investment. That list comes out next week. Amanda and I will both be doing a live event in Miami on Tuesday to talk about what cities came out on top. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can watch that event. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.